0: We find ourselves this morning back in the Gospel of Matthew, specifically in chapter 4, and really at a very important break in the text. As many of you know, every word of Scripture is inspired, every word is inerrant. But those words themselves, the way they're structured on your page, for example, the paragraph breaks and the, the verses that are attributed to them, were not part of the original writing. In fact, that was something that was developed... About the time of the Reformation, when it was possible for people to have their own copies of God's Word. And so, as preaching was the focus again, and as people began to have the opportunity to own Bibles, uh, you had to have a way to help people find out where you were in the Bible. And so, editors would put numbers and chapters and they would divide it up that way. Well, the uh, editor who made the decision to put chapter 4 into this particular format with verse 11 and verse 12 right after each other, uh, clearly failed to to communicate to us just how much time elapsed between those two verses. In fact, um, likely over a year, if you look at the other Gospels. Uh, Quite a bit has happened between the end of chapter uh, 4, verse 11, where the angels are ministering to Jesus after His temptation in the wilderness, and chapter 4, verse 12, It is during that time that John the Baptist's ministry begins to come to an end. It is during that time that everything he said had to happen begins to happen. It was during that time that essentially John the Baptist ran out of time. And it was Jesus now who was ascending in the wake of John's descending As I said earlier, the title of the message is The Righteousness of Christ, and I believe the main argument that Matthew is making here in his gospel is that he is showing us the righteousness of Christ through his fulfillment of prophecy and the focus of his preaching. Through the fulfillment of prophecy and through the focus of his preaching. Let's begin by looking at the first, and that is in prophecy, and specifically the fulfillment of it. Verse 12 of chapter 4 begins, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Just notice right off that there are two things in particular that happened to Jesus here. Number one, notice that he heard, and second, that he withdrew. Jesus in his incarnation, uh, the second person of the Trinity here as the incarnate Son of God, the Son of Man, somebody in a body like yours and mine with the limitations that we have. He had to be told something. Well, it is true that in His divinity, in His divine nature, second person of the Trinity, He was, of course, omniscient. He knew everything, and yet in the incarnation, that human flesh that He took on, being truly man, He was informed of this. And what He heard was that John the Baptist had been arrested and as a result of hearing this, it says, he withdrew. That's a word that is translated elsewhere to communicate the idea of taking refuge somewhere, of seeking refuge in the face of danger. There was a clear connection here between the arrest of John and the decision of Jesus. In fact, this is similar, remember, to when Joseph and Mary are warned about what the king is going to do, and so they flee from where they are and they go to Egypt. It's hard to believe that the Son of God would have to run away from human authorities. But yet, that's exactly what God allows for. That's exactly what God designs. And that is to show that in all of this, he is actually fulfilling prophecy. When Mary and Joseph withdrew to Egypt, you remember that later they came out, and it was in fulfillment of the prophecy that said, out of Egypt, I've called my son. And as we'll see here in the rest of the gospel, when Jesus moves, when he goes from one location to another, the author of the gospel uses that as an opportunity to let us know that the very hinges of redemptive history are also turning. That when the incarnate Son of God goes from one place to another, it is to introduce some new element of redemptive history as it is being revealed to us. The story continues place to place. This is essentially the beginning of the next chapter in the life of Christ. It is the end of one ministry and the beginning of another. It is the increasing that came because of the decreasing of John the Baptist. It's exactly what John the Baptist said would happen. It's what John the Baptist said had to happen. And it's what John the Baptist never tried to make stop happen. Every aspect of what you are seeing here, is perfectly ordained in the plan of God to bring about his herald who is preaching of the coming of the king and then the revelation of the king and then the assumption of that king to his rightful place. John the Baptist is decreasing and Jesus Christ is increasing. Why is John the Baptist decreasing? Well, very simply put, it's because Herod wanted to kill John Because John was the kind of person who didn't fear man. John was the kind of person who spoke boldly and truthfully, even if it meant that the people who were in power were offended by the message. And so what John did was he would consistently preach against Herod, against his incestuous relationship, against his wickedness and his rejection of God's law, against his abuse of power and the fact that he was not submitting himself to the real king of Israel. And so he wanted to kill John as a result of that. He had been confronted, he had been defied, and as a result, John would need to die. And so he puts him in prison, and as you know, the story goes, he would eventually have him executed, John's own head delivered on a platter. But that didn't stop anything. In fact, that merely lit the fuse. If you think that's going to somehow put an end to the preaching of the gospel, you would be wrong. In fact, if you know anything about history, and especially church history, you'll know that it is the very efforts to crush the proclamation of the gospel that only caused it to spread further and faster. It was the very persecution that came in to Jerusalem that caused those who were there in the city as Christians during the time of Pentecost, the many thousand that have come to faith in Christ, to then scatter all over the Roman Empire, which therefore began to bring the gospel from Judea to Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. It was the effort to destroy the proclamation of the gospel that propagated. It spread. Well, this you'll see in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is another example of that. Herod thought that he could kill John the Baptist and therefore silence him, but in killing him, he merely gave voice to someone who was infinitely more powerful. You may recall that Herod's father was the Herod that was going after the very young children who were in the town where Jesus resided, and the fact that because of him we have what's called the slaughter of the innocent. Children, young boys under the age of two, slaughter at the hands of a merciless so-called king who wanted to maintain his power at all costs. Herod's father had tried to kill the child, but that had again just cleared the stage. Herod tries to kill John the Baptist, but that just clears the way. John is no longer the man in focus here. His work is done, and now the focus is going to shift over to Jesus. John is not the Messiah, you'll remember. He said that from the beginning. He said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm pointing to the Messiah. I'm only the herald of the Messiah. But now the one that he proclaimed, the one that he heralded, is now officially being revealed. Why did Jesus do this? It raises an important question. Why did Jesus do it? Why did He go to Galilee? Why did Jesus leave from where He was, closer to the city of Jerusalem, closer to the epicenter of everything that mattered in the religious world at that time? Why did Jesus make His way away from the place where everything that was important was happening and down to a region that by all accounts was literally rejected by Jewish high society? Well, the answer, I think, will become clear to us as we go through the rest of the gospel, but just listen, I'll give you three. The first thing is that he needed to actually educate the population about what was going on with John the Baptist. He needed to go away to where the people were who had gone out to John the Baptist, and in his preaching and teaching, explain to them that he was the one that John was forecasting. Secondly, He had to fulfill the prophecy that said he would come to that place. We'll see that in a moment. He had to fulfill prophecy, and then finally, he needed to end the darkness that was there and bring light to both Jews and to Gentiles. He needed to inform the people who were there. He needed to fulfill the prophecy that said he would go. And he needed to bring light into a place that was so dark for both Jews and Gentiles. The arrest of John the Baptist then was just the beginning of the end of the darkness. Even though this was the low point for the life of John the Baptist, it was the beginning of the end of the hopelessness of the Jews and of the nations in fulfillment of divine prophecy. That is why we see in verse 12 that when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, this is an interesting region, and if you have a Bible with maps in the back, um, let me encourage you to turn to the maps for a second. So if you would turn to first maps. Uh, the maps that I use for this, so I get my, my bearings, at least in, in my Bible here, would be any map that would show me the 12 tribes of Israel. So if you have one of those, you can see the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, this would have been as they were divided up, remember, after the conquest. Down all the way into the south, you've got Simeon. North of that, you've got Judah. It's in the land of Judah that you had Jerusalem. Right above that is Benjamin. Above that, Ephraim. And as we traverse on the west side of the Jordan River, we move into the west side of Manasseh, up into Issachar, and then you'll notice just off to the right at about two o'clock, a place called the Sea of Galilee. Now that Sea of Galilee is the region to which Jesus went. And just west of the Sea of Galilee, you should see the name of two tribes of Israel, Nephtali and Zebulun. They're going to come into play right now. Naphtali and Zebulun. That's the region. That's where Jesus is. That's who we're being informed about right now. Back to verse 13 of Matthew chapter 4. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali. Now before we read about the fulfillment of prophecy here, he's just making a statement. He's giving you a geographical relocation. Jesus moved from here and he went to here. But you might, this afternoon, out of curiosity, turn on your computer and pull up some page on Google Maps uh, or some world atlas, and you would zoom in on the area here, and you would look at it, and you would be hard-pressed to find any cities of note. You would be hard-pressed to find much of anything. In fact, it would just seem like a desert. It would seem like an unpopulated space, and there would be the occasional vineyard and, and maybe some farmland and a few rows of crops, but there doesn't seem to be much of anything there at all. If you go right down into the city of Capernaum right now, and I know this because I just tried it yesterday, you can use satellite imagery to go right down on top of that town, and brothers and sisters, there is nothing. Some of you have been there, some of you have visited. There's an old monastery, there's the rebuilt ruins of a second or third century synagogue. There's also a place believed to be a a home that was an early church. But but in terms of a population, in terms of people regularly living there, there's almost nothing. And it's one of the most amazing things to me about the land of Israel. I mean, it's a place that that has so much historical significance, so much meaning. as so many of these places we read about in the Scriptures. And yet, for some reason, in God's providence, they remain to this very day neglected, I mean, you can't find a nice piece of lakefront property anywhere that hasn't been built up with summer homes. You can't find a nice piece of property almost anywhere that is fertile that hasn't already been, been built up and used for farming. And then, as the expansion of the suburbs gets closer and closer, those farmers sell the land and developers buy it. And next thing you know, you've got cities. There's no skyline around the lake, there's no um, expensive condominium structures around the Sea of Galilee. It's called a sea, it's really just a big lake. It's absolutely amazing to me, and I don't really have an answer for why that is, except in God's providence he allowed it, but it's amazing to look back on it and you can see that it's almost undisturbed from the time that Jesus was there, except for this one very important difference, and please note it. It was anything but abandoned back then. It was anything but abandoned back then. In fact, everywhere in Galilee, it was absolutely teeming with people and with produce. Any commentator who comments on this particular section of Matthew will direct you back towards the ancient writer Josephus, who is actually a high-ranking official who governed in the area. And Josephus, though he is prone to exaggeration, says that this place was absolutely filled with people, that you couldn't go anywhere without bumping into a city or a village. And if you look at it in terms of the actual square miles, it's about half the size of North County. And within that area, if even the most conservative numbers are used, uh, there would be over one and a half million people. Uh, This place was absolutely teeming with prosperity, with agriculture, with individuals from all over the world. There were Jews there, there were Gentiles there. It was a place that had been captured over and over again, by traveling bands of marauders. It had been taken over and over again by other nations. It had been conquered and resettled, conquered and resettled. It was an area that everybody wanted. And even though it was far away from Jerusalem and far away from the religious center of everything, Nephtali and Zebulun were still cherished pieces of real estate. And it's very important that Jesus went there. He went away from all of the religious and cultural center but he went into a place that was teeming with people, not only Jews, but also Gentiles, on a major trade route. I don't know if this saying is true, and I've heard attributed to various people. It's not me. I'm not sure who to attribute it to, but somebody has said, or several people have said this old saying, that the roads to Jerusalem led nowhere, the roads to Galilee led to everywhere. That while Galilee was a place that people did not speak highly of, it was still a place that was highly valued. And one of the reasons is that there were so many people who had come into that area from the nations, and therefore it was a place that was filled with commerce. It was a place that was filled with opportunities for people like Matthew who wrote this gospel to set up his tax franchise and tax people as they came in and out of that region. That's one of the ways they made their money. So with all that, to just sort of um, maybe, maybe fill in our understanding of what's being said here about the geography, let's look back at the verse. He leaves Nazareth, which everyone agreed was a nowhere town, both now and then, and he goes and lives by the sea in Capernaum. It was a commercial center. It was at the center of a very important trade route, but more importantly, these tribal names that are mentioned Zebulun and Naphtali mean that this would prove to be the fulfillment of divine prophecy even this movement of Jesus <clears throat> was fulfilling divine prophecy we'll see this in verse 14 through 16 take a look so that the reason he did this the so that the purpose clause why did he move over to this area so that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled Namely that, and he's quoting Isaiah now, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What an amazing prophecy. Allow us just to go back and march through it. Some things to note here. Number one, this was a fulfillment of a specific prophecy in Isaiah. The author, Matthew, tells us precisely where it comes. He is not just quoting Scripture randomly. The people who read this would have known about the prophet Isaiah. They would have known that scroll, one of the very scrolls that Jesus himself read from when he was teaching in the synagogue. And they knew this particular prophet, and they knew what he had said. And if you remember from our previous studies, this is Matthew telling us that the ultimate fulfillment of those prophecies is found here. Matthew has the ability to go back into the Old Testament text and to pull that out and not just say these events are similar to that because they involve the same towns. And he's not just saying that, well, because I'm an apostle and I'm inspired by the Holy Spirit, I can say this, even though it's not really true. He is actually saying it is fully true that what was prophesied back then is being fulfilled here. This is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was ultimately saying. And the specifics of the fulfillment are that the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea. You see, even back then it was well known. It had a way, it had a road, that people would come in and out from that area by Galilee. It was along the way. It was a free way, you might say. It was a common way. And so because of that, people knew exactly where Jesus was going. But because of that, it was also called the place beyond the Jordan, so that it's clear. This was in the specific land of Canaan, but it was called down here. And this is not a term to embellish or to complement it. It was called Galilee of the what? Of The Gentiles. You see, the Jews didn't call anything something of the Gentiles to elevate its importance. In fact, as you know, they view the Gentiles as unclean. They view the Gentiles as dogs. Why were there Gentiles in this area in the first place? There were Gentiles here because, please note it, Zebulun and Naphtali, the the two uh, Israelite tribes, failed to do what God told them to do in Joshua, and that is to run out all these foreigners. They were told then that they were supposed to take the land and they were supposed to expel all of the Gentiles, but they didn't do that. They allowed some of them to remain, and because they remained, they would then intermarry with the Jews that were there. They created this half-breed of people that was detested by the pure-blooded Jews, but they also became a safe haven simply for Gentiles, whom the Jews did not believe at that time were entitled to receive the promises of Yahweh, their covenant God. It is Gentile territory that Jesus went. And Jesus didn't just find himself in Gentile territory. Jesus went specifically to Gentile territory. And the reason is this, verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. You see, they were the ones that were in darkness spiritually. They were in darkness because they did not know the truth. They did not know that the Messiah was here and Jesus went there to declare that he had arrived. It is not unlike what happened when he went down into the very prisons of Gehenna, the very prisons of hell, and declared to the captives there his victory over sin and death and hell. You see, Jesus Christ himself goes to the place of darkness in order to declare the fact that he is the light and the light has dawned, that he is the victor, he is the conqueror. But in this case, he comes not to say that I have conquered, but to say that I am the light and I've come here to bring you to the light. Because those dwelling in the region were dwelling in the shadow of death, in the shadow of darkness, and now on them light has dawned. In your bulletin, you notice I've given you three passages you can use for context. You don't have to turn there because I'm just going to read them to you briefly. This should be familiar. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 says something very similar. This is Yahweh Himself saying that He has called out to them, specifically to the prison of those who sit in darkness, to those who sit in the dungeon. Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3, there is a call to arise and to shine, that this light has come, the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. Turn away from your darkness Turn away from everything that has covered you and imprisoned you and turn your eyes, O oh, you nations. And he says, come to the light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Brothers and sisters, evangelism is the consistent declaration that light has shone and that people entrapped in the prison and dungeons of darkness can come to the one who will give them light and life. Jesus went to a region that was dark, not a region that was religious. Jesus came into the place where the darkness was thickest, and he preaches the coming of the light and the fulfillment of prophecy. Please don't fail to notice that Isaiah said that the light would come to the nations. The Jews had withheld this. Jesus says, I'm bringing it Oh, yes to the Jews. Oh, yes to the nation of Israel. Yes to his people. Yes to his brothers. But not only to them, also to the Gentiles. And isn't it wonderful that he did? Because were that gospel message not brought to the Gentiles, I would venture to say almost none of us would be here today. Why this area? Because it had been decimated over and over. It had been replaced by Gentiles over and over It was never fully cleaned out, and therefore the idolatrous infection was there, and it had spread. It was a mixed place. It was not in the heart of the Jewish nation like Jerusalem. But at this point, Jesus was not for Israel alone, but for Israel and the nations. He was calling all to Himself. He was for the Jews, yes, but also for the Gentiles, a light to the nations. He was prefiguring what even us as the church would be someday a mixed group from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would just want to remind you that that same proclamation of the light is being preached this morning that whatever your darkness is, that there's one who has come to bring light to it. You might be in spiritual darkness, You might not have any idea what to do in terms of your spiritual life. You might be in the darkness of another religion that is keeping you from truly understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might be carrying with you a darkness that is so thick and heavy because of just the guilt of everything that you know you've done in your life and a feeling of total unworthiness. Or you might be in the darkness of your own disbelief, settling instead to just sit in the pitch blackness of your denial that there really is a God and there really is a holy judge. Well, my invitation to you this morning is to just listen carefully and to ask that, should this God be real, that he would be gracious to you and open up your eyes to see the light of the truth even today. And if you know somebody who's here today that has not put their faith in Christ, may you be praying for them even now that God would do that for his own glory. Because the proclamation of that light and that light illuminating dark and dead hearts hasn't changed and it hasn't stopped. Spiritual darkness is a reality. And there might be some that are even sitting here today who have been in absolute darkness, even though you live in a city that I'm told has 268 sunny days a year. Now, I don't know. I don't think that's been the case lately. But it's amazing how even in a very sunny place like Southern California... There are so many people walking around in absolute darkness. Evangelism, brothers and sisters, is simply this it's the bringing of the light of the gospel to the darkness of the world. You can't force people to change, but you can simply draw them to the light if God gives them the eyes to see it. John the Baptist declared that. He declared the arrival of the light, Jesus preached the arrival of the light. And by God's grace, I'm here today to proclaim the dawning of that light to you and it's going to continue to be preached until the Lord returns. Every effort to stamp it out, every effort to cause it to go out under the the bushels and the coverings of whatever the world tries to do to snuff it out has failed and it has simply spread. Yes, in fulfillment of prophecy, Yes to the Jews and to the Gentiles, and now by God's grace to the very ends of the earth. So the first way in which we see that Jesus Christ himself, the very righteousness of Christ, is being displayed to us in his ministry is through the fulfillment of prophecy. And then number two, let's look at this, simply in the focus of his preaching, in the focus of his preaching. This is the start of the preaching ministry. Now, if you have a Bible open in front of you, and if you're the type of person who makes marks in your Bible, I would recommend that you circle verse 17, because verse 17 begins with a statement that is going to be very important for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. It begins with these simple words, from that time. And the other place where this is used is over in Matthew 16, verse 21. If you look over there, Matthew 16, verse 21, you see the words, from that time. So, from that time, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, and then from that time, in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus turns his attention to Jerusalem in the final year of his ministry, and ultimately, his march to the cross. So that phrase, from that time, are two very important markers in the Gospel of Matthew. For the next several months, we're going to be in that first section. From that time, he goes from Jerusalem and Nazareth down to Galilee, down to this Gentile-infested region that was well-known, very productive, very profitable, filled with people coming and going. In order that he might explain to everybody that the one John preached of has finally come, and he would bring light to the Gentiles, and he would fulfill prophecy over and over and over again by doing things like healing diseases, casting out demons, and bringing a message of hope. Well, it says here that from that time, Jesus began to preach. Now, it's important to remember John is in jail, but Jesus was free. John was silenced, but Jesus breaks forth in preaching. That from that time, the preaching of ministry of Jesus begins in Galilee, and he picks right up where John left off. And in that way, it's very similar. He spoke the same word, and he spoke with the same authority. Herod, you'll recall, had foolishly found out that you cannot silence the truth of God. I mean, you can keep threatening them, and imprisoning them, and killing them, but those who preach the word continue. John is in prison but the message is free. Soon John will lose his head, but it won't silence his voice. That we will hear more sermons in the coming weeks from Jesus as he carries on the ministry of John the Baptist. One said he will come, the other said I am here. And the one who said I am here is the one who continues to preach, and he preaches to this very day, In fact, his words are coming through in my words when he says, I am here, I have arrived, the King is here. He will apply the gospel to us with good instructions on how to live for his glory. If you're a Christian today, that's what he does. He preaches to you the good word from God. His holy and good law that one might obey out of gratitude to God and the power of the Holy Spirit to live for his glory. He's going to reveal through parables the truth of the kingdom to those who belong to him, those who have ears to hear, those who have eyes to see. But he's also going to use parables, those same parables, to hide that truth from others as an ongoing judgment, exposing their darkness and hard-heartedness. You see, he is going to be preaching a gospel. And in so doing, he is going to be at war from this moment on with the self-righteous religion of the Pharisees, He will be at war with both paganism and religion. He will be at war with both wickedness and self-righteousness. He will be at war with both those who have never heard the truth and those who have distorted the truth. The preaching ministry of Jesus is going to be what occupies our attention for most of the next few months, As I said to you earlier in a few sermons ago, we're actually going to be looking at the very sermons of Jesus. The very words of our Lord as He spoke to them to assembled, gathered crowds. I truly can't think of anything more intimidating than having to stand up here before you and declare to you the Word of God as the very words of Jesus in the sermons that He preached. I mean, how could I improve upon that? How how could I possibly embellish that or bring further clarity to it? But just allowing the words themselves to to come to us is going to be a blessing. Hopefully that as we go through them, we'll be able to understand them in context, maybe a little bit more clearly, and then apply them as best we can to our own lives. But they will stand alone. Jesus was a preacher. And there's a difference in some ways between preaching and teaching. Preaching is when you declare something, you herald something, you state something, you announce something. The preaching is very one way, uh, similar to what goes on right now up here. I mean, it's a very one way. It's not exactly interactive. Uh, you're not exactly interrupting me by raising your hand and asking questions. and I appreciate that. thank you. Let's keep that practice going. Proclaiming is something that you simply do and you, and you proclaim that word and you teach it and you, you try to say it as clearly as you can, but you really rest upon the power of the spirit to take that then into open up the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf and to encourage the hearts of those who have already believed. Teaching is when you are more interactive. You reason with people. You explain the Scriptures. There's questions and there's answers. Jesus will do both, but do not lose sight of the fact that Jesus came primarily as a preacher, a herald of truth. And I know that because we now get to look at the very first words recorded in this gospel that he spoke. Haven't you been waiting for this? If you have like a red letter Bible, we finally get to some red letters. Everything in the Word of God is equally inspired, okay? Don't think the red letter section is more special. It's all inspired, But if you began with this study back at the beginning of Matthew, I hope you were anticipating the day when we finally got to hear from Jesus. What is he going to say when he comes on the scene? Well, the wait is over, and here we are. And notice what Matthew chooses to write in his account as the very first words of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the one anointed as the one in whom God is well-pleased, the one fulfilling all righteousness, the one who steps up on the stage because John the Baptist is no longer preaching, the one who now finally opens his mouth and, as it were, declares for all of us the very first words that are going to begin the ministry that will fill the rest of the pages of Matthew. This is what the author chose to put down here. Jesus came saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand one sentence. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There are two parts to this sentence. The first part is the word repent. The second part is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's begin to look at the meaning of this very short first sermon. It basically sums everything up. Look at the word repent. Repent is the word that many of you are familiar with. You've used it, no doubt, on a regular basis. It means to turn Some people use it as a way of communicating that they're sorry for something or that they regret something. But true repentance is not merely feeling sorry. True repentance is not even acknowledging when you're genuinely sorry. True repentance was a turning. It was a word that was used to describe what happens when somebody's mind is going one direction and they're fixated on it and then they turn it the opposite direction. That's what it means to change, to turn. It's the first word that Matthew gives us from the lips of the Lord Jesus. It's the first step, you would say, in submitting to the king and turning from other rulers. Remember, Jesus came and presented himself as the king, and he said that in order for you to follow me as king, in order for you to be a servant in my kingdom, you must turn away from all the other kingdoms, all the other kings, all the other gods. To repent is to turn, and it's to turn from Satan, to turn from the prince of the power of the age, and to turn to Christ. The good news, friends, is that this is not only a statement, but it's also an offer. It's not only a statement, but it's also an offer. Do you hear it today? Do you hear the actual words and how they are applicable today? Friend, if you're not a Christian today, this is a declaration for you. This is a declaration for you to, to turn. To turn from everything you're putting your confidence in right now to make you right before a holy God, and turn instead to the one who came to clothe you with his righteousness so that you can be right before a holy God. Everything you're looking to, to absolve your guilty conscience of the sins that you know you've committed, and turn to the one who takes all of those sins on himself and pays for them in full, past, present, and future, and therefore wipes away the debt that you owe, so that he not only pays everything that you owe, but accomplishes everything you couldn't do he pays your debt, and he does your work. It's a call to you today. And you might say, well, it's okay, I'm already a Christian, praise God. And I would agree, praise God. But you know, this is for you too. And so we all are constantly being reminded to repent and remind ourselves that as those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that that is where we ought to have our minds. That is where we ought to have our focus. It's not like you repent once and then you stop repenting. You stop confessing your sin. You stop acknowledging your guilt in fact, the way I've often thought about it is that the older you get, and the more mature you come in Christ in Christ, and the more fruitful you become, uh, you end up sinning less and repenting more. You end up seeing more and more areas of your life that are clearly sinful, more and more things that your conscience never bothered you about before. And as you mature in your understanding of the true essence of what God calls you to in terms of personal holiness, the more broken you are over your constant sin, your constant failure, and yet by God's grace, as you mature and become more fruitful, the times you actually embrace that temptation and give into it become less and less. You see, this is not meant to be threatening. It's actually meant to give you hope. It's meant to tell you that change can really happen, that you can really turn. It's not offensive when you see the fact that the light of salvation is a rescue and that repentance continues. You're given the ability to repent the first time and to keep on repenting, to keep on confessing to keep forgiving and being forgiven, to aim to live a life that is regularly turning from sin and turning to Christ. And and I don't want to use this little saying and make you think it's kind of goofy because it is kind of goofy, but I'm going to use it anyway, and and I want you just to really think about how profound it actually is. I heard one time from an evangelist preacher, and, and he was talking about how even Christians can fall into sin sometimes. And the statement that he made went something like this, you know, you can walk a hundred steps away from God, but it only takes one step to get back to Him. And I know that sounds kind of campy, but you know what, it's, it's, it's true. It's true that, that, that even a Christian in, in their season of backsliding, in their season of turning away from God, and their season of even indulging in sin, even knowingly indulging in sin, and not unlike, for example, King David, who we heard about not too long ago, that at the moment one turns, just like the prodigal son, there is no trial period, there is no probation period, there is no, well, okay, you can come back, but you got to start back at level one again. It's an immediate reception back into the open arms of the Father who loves you and and lavishes His his grace and His forgiveness upon you. There's so much to be said about repentance that we're actually going to spend an entire week next week on a topical message specifically on repentance. What is it and how does it apply to both the unbeliever and the believer? But for now, let's remember that even as Christians we need to be asked, shall we continue on in sin that grace may abound, may it never be. Shall we talk for a moment about sin? Shall we admit for a moment that we are sinners and continue to sin? We have good news, brothers and sisters, that the one who calls us to repent can also forgive. I thought about this earlier this week. It's one thing if all he did was call us to repent I mean, that alone would be merciful, but imagine the fact that he calls us not only to repent, but calls us to himself as the one who then can forgive. You see, it's not just, oh, have a broken heart of repentance. It's have a broken heart of repentance and come to me as the one who forgives, the one who can help you lay your burdens down, the one who can give you rest. That is good news. That is good news. More on that next week. But let's wrap up with this next part of his message, and that is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you were to do a a word search for the word kingdom or kingdom of heaven, you'll notice that it happens dozens of times in the book of Matthew. In fact, the word kingdom is used to describe a kingdom of man, the kingdom of Satan, and the kingdom of God. Uh, The word kingdom is used to describe how a house cannot be divided against itself. The word kingdom is used of the things that are going to happen in your life right now as being part of the kingdom of God and under submission to the king and also events that will happen in the future when the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God is a vast topic that will take many weeks to unpack. But for this week, let's just allow ourselves to introduce it. I'm going to do that by simply saying this. Number one, a kingdom has a king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And the king, as you know, is King Jesus. King Jesus has come. He has been anointed. He has been identified. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. A kingdom implies a king, and if you have a king, it implies a rule. It implies authority and majesty. It implies that he is the king and you are not. It implies that he has the right to rule and to reign. If you tell somebody they have their own little kingdom, that's what you mean, don't you? They have their own little area in which they seem to exercise sovereign rule. But what we're going to see here is that when Christ talks about His rule, His rule is over everything. He has been given rule over everything. You can look at the rest of the book this week and you can see just how often the word appears. You've got a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. You've got a kingdom of man and a kingdom of God. You've got a kingdom now and a kingdom to come. You've got a kingdom that is being destroyed and a kingdom that is being built up. If you tell somebody that they need to submit to the king, you're telling them they need to become part of his kingdom. And these kingdoms delegate power to those who minister in the name of that kingdom. And everybody who comes preaching the gospel ministers in the name of the great king. Not to turn attention to yourself, but to turn attention to him. That is what John the Baptist did. That's what Jesus did came to do. And you'll notice here at the last part, it is at hand. What does it mean? Well, it means that the kingdom, in some respects, is here now, but not in its fullness. And it means, in some respects, that the kingdom is in the future, but yet it is inaugurated now, there's a thing, a, a, a thing that we can say regarding the kingdom, which is that it has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. We'll see in the discussion about the kingdom throughout the book of Matthew that there are certainly elements that are at work right now, and there are things that are yet to come. There are descriptions that are present, and there are descriptions that are future. The reality is that if you read Matthew... You won't see just one or just the other. You will see both, and they are working together in tandem. There are certain aspects now, and there are aspects in the future, and we're going to go into that in more detail as the Gospel of Matthew unfolds. Rather than sort of scan through the whole book of Matthew or give you a theological treatise on this, I think what we will do is simply allow it to come up as it does in the text and describe it every place we see it. It's going to be unpacked in the rest of Matthew. The King, the Anointed One... The one that has all rule and authority has been given to, but yet awaits the final glorious coronation when all of those things are finally displayed as being under His feet and all of His enemies permanently vanquished. But brothers and sisters, this is where it all begins. This is the section that kicks off the ministry of the King. Repent, He says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And may God be pleased to reveal that truth to every person here for His glory and for Your eternal good. Amen? Father, thank You for the revelation of Your Word and the Gospel of Matthew and for this glorious truth. We are so frail and so incapable of bearing up under the weight of what is being dropped upon us in these simple words. So strengthen us by the power of your Spirit. Give us minds to comprehend, hearts to believe, a will to obey. I appeal to you by the mercy of Christ that if there be any today that you have set your electing love upon that would turn repentance and faith, that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray for those who have already put their faith in Christ, that today would be a comforting day where they see that the ongoing confession and repentance that marks the life of a believer is not something that makes us right with you, but it is something that acknowledges that we will never be perfectly righteous until you return and until the resurrection when we can finally in glorified bodies love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. In the meantime, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us a will to do that as you graciously allow us to, though imperfectly. For it's in your name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.